This Cap Times podcast is brought to you by Exact Sciences Corporation, the makers of Colaguard. Learn more at exactsciences.com. Welcome to On the Cover, a weekly Mad Splainers feature. I'm podcast producer Natalie Yar, and each week I sit down with the reporter behind our latest cover story to find out why it matters. Today, I'm here with Cap Times higher education reporter Yvonne Kim, who spoke with a number of folks from UW-Madison to find out how the coronavirus has changed their lives, work, and studies. Welcome, Yvonne. Hi, Natalie. It's good to be here. First, can you catch us up? What all has changed on campus? So that's a pretty loaded question. Almost everything on campus has changed over the past month or so. The most obvious one being that classes are obviously no longer happening in person, so everything has moved online to a remote learning environment. Also, in-person research at laboratories have been shut down other than people who are studying COVID-19 or the coronavirus. Most students who aren't from Madison have left campus and are in their permanent residences. And so much more has changed. All the events have been canceled. And if you walk around campus right now, it really just feels not the same. It's almost like a graveyard right now. So practically everything is the short answer to that question. I can imagine. So when you set out to learn how these changes were playing out for the campus community, who did you most want to talk to? I'd have to say I was probably most excited to speak with the college Democrats, the college Republicans, the student council and all those groups of students who are very politically engaged and active. I say that just because that's actually what this cover story was originally supposed to be about. In the past few weeks, I ended up last minute pivoting to a much broader cover story that looked at campus life generally as the scale of the pandemic was widening. But my initial plan had been to report on preparations for the 2020 primaries and civic engagement. And as you know, all of that has changed so rapidly in the past month, even in the past day. So it's been fascinating to keep up with how the coronavirus has upended those preparations for students and faculty who really care about getting out the student vote and youth voter turnout in Madison. Yeah. So how has the campus closure changed how students are going to vote? So one of the biggest if not the biggest challenge for student voting at UW-Madison is that their student ID cards don't qualify as proper state ID when you go to the polls to vote, which means that if a student doesn't have a Wisconsin driver's license, a U.S. passport, or any legally okayed form of ID, they need to pick up a temporary voter ID on campus that they can then use at the polls. And that's always been a huge point of confusion on campus. And over the past few years, students and administrators have done a really good job educating people about these requirements so that they're ready to go vote for the primary this year. And now with this whole new wave of obstacles, students are heading home. They're at their permanent residences. They either have to register to vote absentee by mail or they have to register at their polling places wherever their homes are. And having left campus so abruptly, you know, they probably didn't even have time to think about getting their voter ID before they left. So those were the major obstacles that they were facing. And student activists and faculty and administrators were really trying to get the message out that they need to take more action right now and rapidly if they still want to be able to vote in April. And what were some of the things that they were doing to try to help students be able to vote? 
Right. So many university bodies, such as the Student Council or the Badger Vote Coalition, which is made up of students and faculty, have been doing a lot of work to overhaul, basically, their communication strategy in the past few weeks and educate students in the midst of everything transforming so quickly. They sent out informational resources with slides on how to vote absentee. The student ID card actually now is sending out state compliant IDs remotely through email, so they don't have to be on campus physically and stop by to pick it up. They can just send an email and receive one digitally. And a university spokeswoman tells me that the city clerk said students have actually been doing a really great job with absentee voting this year so far. But of course, we can't be too hopeful about that or know anything for sure until much later when we have the numbers by ward and by turnout. This podcast is brought to you by Exact Sciences. Join the Madison-based team working to lead earlier cancer detection. Visit exactsciences.com to view the company's hundreds of open jobs. And you also spoke to professors who've switched from standing at the front of a classroom to teaching through a computer screen. How has the move to online classes been changing teaching? Thankfully, it seems that most professors are doing quite a good job with the intensity of the situation and moving their coursework online. Obviously, it's a big range of challenges for different professors who teach different subjects. For instance, something that's a lot more lab-based or hands-on is going to be much more difficult to translate into a digital setting than it is to do something that's more theory or just discussion in a Zoom virtual classroom. But most of the professors I've spoken to actually seem to be doing a pretty good job. They're navigating different video software conferences. They're really reaching out to their students to learn about their accessibility needs, whether that might be, you know, poor internet access or the times of day that they're teaching and all of those obstacles um, that they're navigating right now. And tell me about journalism professor Sue Robinson's class. Why was that a particularly tricky one to switch to online? So Robinson teaches a journalism for social change course this semester, which she referred to as a service learning class. So once a week, their students will go out into real-life communities in the Madison area, such as Freedom Inc., which works with young Hispanic, Hmong, and Black girls, or Simpson Street Free Press, which is for young journalists in middle and high school. And they'll work with these students to teach them journalism production skills. And obviously, that's not something that's possible now. So they're transitioning a lot of their work digitally and editing stories for the Free Press, online through Google Drive, or they'll be creating lectures through video about social media professionalism. And the things that these college students are doing really mirror the same changes that the professor is making for them in their classroom. And all of that has so many moving parts. So Robinson is really working to make sure the final project guidelines are more flexible for her students and really focusing on stripping down this course to what is most essential and what she wants them to get out of it at the end of the day, which is centering on community and engaging as much as possible with the people in Madison. And that's hard work to do entirely online. She mentions to me, you know, for example, the difficulty of teaching something like race or identity and the difficulty of reading someone's body language in a Zoom setting instead of in a real life classroom. So these are all issues that she is working through, but that's definitely one of the trickier ones that I encountered in my reporting. 
And you spoke with another professor, Kristen Masters, who was trying to manage a number of different changes in her work and personal life. Can you tell me about Kristen Masters? Yes. Masters is a biomedical engineering professor and researcher, and she saw her lab shut down mid-March, as most labs on campus have for student and faculty safety reasons. They deal primarily in her lab with living human cell tissues, which they grow in the lab in petri dishes, and they use these tissues to model diseases or drug treatments and see their efficacy on them. So, of course, these are not specimens that would last through months of leaving the lab empty, and they made the choice pretty early on in the pandemic to close down entirely. And She's been balancing that on top of being a professor, teaching coursework online, and being a single mother at home with two children. She actually says that full-time childcare has been the harder part of all of this compared to being a professor or a researcher. So I think she was just a great example in this story of how all of these different sections and communities on campus are overlapping. These stories don't really exist in a vacuum, and people are playing a lot of different roles at once while stuck at home. And Chinese and Chinese-American members of the campus community are dealing with all of these same challenges, plus also some racism and xenophobia. What have you been hearing from them, and how are they responding? The biggest story regarding the Chinese and Chinese-American community at UW in this past month was in response to two incidents of racist graffiti that was found on campus. One was at the Walgreens on State and Lake Streets, and one was near the Humanities Building which referred to the coronavirus as the Chinese virus, which, as we know, is rhetoric that was first employed by President Trump to become really viral on Twitter. And after that, the campus community really had to rally behind solidarity with the Asian American community. They hosted two town halls, virtually, of course, that each attracted about 500 people. So this was a big topic of discussion. And a lot of members of the faculty, both within and outside of the Chinese communities were really disheartened by these incidents, of course, and have reached out to support as much as possible. In response, I've heard quite a mixture of emotions, obviously sadness and even fear or anxiety about this xenophobia, but at the same time, so many of the Chinese faculty that I've encountered seem to want to make a difference in their community, to not just be afraid in the wake of these incidents, but to do something about it to help. So they've been doing fundraisers to raise money, to donate masks to people working on the front lines and to serve their communities in the same ways that they always have been, either as professors or as grocery store owners, as researchers and et cetera. So it's been a definitely a emotional roller coaster for them, I think. But at the end of it, they are still working hard to be the same members in the community that they have been even before this. And as you were reporting this story, what was particularly surprising to you? I touched on this a little bit earlier, but I think the most surprising thing for me, or at least that made me feel so much more empathetic about all the reporting I was doing, is that all these people are playing so many different roles. And before the pandemic, we had different physical spaces in which we were able to do those things. You know, you would commute to school to be a professor, come back home to be a mother, go to your lab to be a researcher. And now people are doing all of this in the confines of their homes. So I think that's the thing that took me aback so much as, you know, a professor's kid might interrupt an interview or something like that, that not only are we navigating a completely 
new terrain, but we're also doing it in such a limited physical space and that makes it infinitely more difficult. So I think that's something that's obviously not unique to UW, but it's something that I definitely noticed and felt so much more as I was reporting this cover story. Absolutely. And for you as a higher education reporter with the schools now, at least temporarily not holding in-person classes and so much of their work shifted off campus, how does that shift what it means to be a higher education reporter and stay up on what the schools are doing? That's a great question. I think that's also part of what motivated me to change the scope of this cover story in the first place. I felt like I was following so much news about closures and in-person class suspensions and writing all these daily stories that I thought didn't really do justice to how intensely not just UW but higher education across this whole country and the world has been upended in the past few months. So as a reporter, sometimes I think it's disheartening and scary because it feels like my beat is gone and I don't have a campus to report on. But at the same time, I think there's also no better or more interesting time to be doing this work. It's really fascinating and even encouraging to see how people are adapting to the situation, how faculty and students are reaching out to each other in a completely new environment online, doing their best to stay connected. And as I mentioned before, their biggest priority right now really seems to be focusing on what's essential, on the spirit of education and research. So that's what I'm trying to focus on in the next few months, I think, looking at different channels of achieving the same means that people had before and looking at how they navigate this as the story develops. Absolutely. Yvonne, thank you so much for your work and for talking to me for the podcast. Appreciate it. Thank you, Natalie. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Yvonne Kim, who's always following the latest in Madison area higher education, even when a pandemic turns schools upside down. Tune in next week when the tables turn and Abby Becker interviews me about my cover story. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe to The Madsplainers on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever else you do your listening, and leave us a review while you're there. Also, be sure to check out our other podcasts, including The Corner Table, all about food and drink in Madison, and Wedge Issues, all about state politics. Until next time, thanks for listening. This podcast has been brought to you by Exact Sciences Corporation, the makers of Colaguard. Once again, be sure to learn more at exactsciences.com.